everything is uh, is sitting in the in the chair, and the teacher is kind of feeding you this like little babies. <laughs> and then you you leave here, and and uh, you have to, you know, if you if you just um, you aren't going to find life like it, you know, going to fit itself into this type of style. This is is a special situation. So remember that the retreat is, is, a, is, a, is a, it's a special situation just, uh, that is made available to you. People do get addicted to retreats. They have to go from one retreat to another. So that, <laughs> because they, they uh, you know, it's certainly one of the better forms of addiction <laughs> we'll have to have a 12-step program to get people off retreats. <laughs> but they, but they uh, recognize, this is why reflection is important, to, to put this kind of situation in, 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 that you're recognizing that it is special. That we're not saying meditation is this way, to really meditate and and all that. You have to have this, exactly this kind of situation for yourself because you can't spend your life just living in, in a monastic life. We have to work, we have to do all kinds of things. We can't just sit in, in meditation halls all day long and, and, and uh, sit in silence. We have periods of that, but for much of our life is a kind of working and, and uh, getting on with life. And, the necessity of survival and and living in a society. So re retreats are, you know, very helpful. But the danger is always to think that this is what you have to do. It has to be exactly like this. Because you oftentimes you connect or you 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 kind of quite unintentionally, but you you. You, any insights and experiences you have on a retreat, you, you, you kind of psychologically connect it with the retreat situation it's in. And then the, the, the logic is that in order to have that, I have to have this quiet, this, this kind of situation in order to, to be, be there again, to get back to that state. Recognize that there's a, a kind of sensory deprivation situation here. We're, we're, not, we're, not, we're not trying to stimulate your senses, excite your senses. And so that, uh, that the, you know, the, the silence, the fact that we, we don't try to kind of dress up, make ourselves uh, attractive to each other, or, or we're not here to kind of engage in scintillating conversations or play games or do things that that excite uh, the senses so in in this way we're not being when you know there's not intention we're not seeking sensory stimulation on a meditation if we want that you go some other place london very exciting city a lot of sensory stimulation in london in fact, in, on a retreat, uh, you get so kind of calmed and, and, and uh, 
subdued and peaceful that when you, when you have to go into London after a retreat, you feel it's really quite uh, unpleasant. The kind of the, the aggressive stimulation, the kind of excitement and that the, of a big city like that. You can feel it, you can notice when you're kind of, you know, the, the, the way, just the, 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 the atmosphere of the city or the, the advertisements, the way people dress, the shop windows, the buildings, the architecture, the everything tends to, to, to create a, some kind of excitement or strong reaction. Well, when you say here, say if you're looking at the sky or listening to the sound of silence or watching your breath or looking at the trees, Then, then, then that will, then that it, it doesn't excite the mind. Most people would find that incredibly boring. And most people want, you know, see excitement is, is, is that's what they live for is the sense of being stimulated and excited. So there's this sensory deprivation where we're restraining the sense, the the the, the aggressive strong sense experiences. We're not seeking those out as things to distract or to follow. And we're becoming aware more of the subtlety. Because if you're going, if you're living in a world of extreme excitement, then your life lacks any subtlety. You just, you, you become, you know, you have to have what what is exciting today is boring tomorrow. They have to increasingly kind of high levels of excitement to be stimulated. One just gets bored with too much excitement. And one wants more excitement. Like you could see the the uh, drugs, uh, the pe- way people uh, depend on drugs to, to get into very high states of excitement. Okay. One exciting thing after another. One a continuous high for as long as you can sustain it. Let's say with meditation, then we're we're not when when we took the precepts, no drugs, no those kind of drugs are allowed, <laughs> and no drinking. Uh, sex is exciting. Anything sexual is very exciting. So I mean, it, uh, the. They, they use uh, all their sex and violence in, in the, to make popular uh, cinema so that it appeals to, to, to the largest percentage of hum, human beings to be in this state of excitement. It's a low level too, isn't it? It's where they say the... the uh, the, co- the lowest common denominator, sex and violence. Then as we move, if we say refinements, we get into more kind of uh, refinements of sensory experience where we, we, we like more kind of high-minded things. Or, but still they're exciting. They still excite the mind as we can move into kind of more refined aesthetic experiences. But at least the, that those are cultivated. Those aren't the lowest common denominator. Mm. 
this is just a reflection on on the conditioned realm of this realm that does that is exciting uh, place to to live and then a retreat is uh, we we choose to come to a retreat and we move into a, uh, and the retreat is set up to to not be exciting and then the techniques are developed around just the that which is definitely not exciting, like breathing or contemplation of the body or the silence. So this gives you some kind of perspective on, on the realm that, you, that we all live in. This is a sense realm, sensory realm, sensual realm. These are senses, like the eyes are sensitive conditions. The, the eyes, are, we, we identify a lot with what we see. We like visual things, colors and forms. And sound excites the mind. Music and all kinds of exciting sounds or pleasing uh, sounds that we can, that we like to listen to. And food, odors, uh, pleasurable physical sensations, exciting thoughts and ideas. And these are extreme. So contemplating, the, say, the, the, the experience of excitation or Vedana, when the, we talk about the body and then the, the feeling of the fire, the, the Buddha divided the, everything up into five groups, five aggregates. The body, we say rupa, vedana, sanya, sankara, vinyana. Rupa is the body. And so we contemplate this, this body is, is a sense body, sensitive form. Not, we can say it's sensual, but that oftentimes means it that we like to say uh, that it, that has a another connotation, but sensitive. This is a sensitive form in nature. It's conscious. Consciousness then is is uh, they when we contemplate say the four elements of the solid, liquid, the heat element in air. We also have uh, consciousness in space, so that that these uh, for the four elements, then we have these these kind of unbounded elements of consciousness in space. So, so in say the conscious experience of life that we have, we're we're using it. We're 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 in a form that's conscious. So now we are learning how to use wisdom to inform and educate conscious experience. Because up to now, say, maybe our consciousness has just been conditioned by culture and education. We've just been, you know, instilled with, with ideas, views, opinions uh, from someone else, from, from our culture, from our religion, from our education. So we acquire all kinds of, of uh, attitudes and assumptions and information that isn't from 
from it isn't necessarily wisdom at all, but it's uh, it's conditioned kind of knowledge that we acquire after we're born. And the sense of oneself is that is is is, is part of that, the ego, is the the assumptions that come from. Uh, from me and mine, from just having language where we, and thinking about myself, just being able to say, me, what I think, if you want to know what I think, if you want my opinion, my ideas, I am. <laughs> and so the, the way we even emphasize uh, in language. It's interesting to have the the I is just one, one letter of the alphabet, isn't it? In English, uh, lends itself well to uh, to symbolism. I, the kind of vertical thing, vertical letter. And then there's me. What about me? And <laughs> and that's mine. <laughs> so the. This way of thinking uh, is uh, we we create ourselves as somebody who who uh, ha- has all kinds of you know we 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 acquire all kinds of information about ourselves which may not be true at all whether we're lovable or not whether we're attractive or not whether we're intelligent or stupid whether we're uh, good or bad we get a lot of things from just from the early years the innocent years of life don't we when we're when we have no when when we don't really have an ego at all we we just we that say innocence is a kind of like without an ego it's quite we but we we develop a sense of ourself and our self worth as we as we get older and all this is based usually on ignorance, not understanding the Four Noble Truths, not seeing things as they really are. <laughs> so now the opportunity is to re-educate with wisdom, using wisdom. But this wisdom is, is with intuitive awareness, direct wisdom. It's not acquired knowledge. That's why it's not important to, to, to know a lot about Buddhism. To, to have a to study and and uh, and know all the kind of Buddhist philosophy and and various uh, all the the kind of incredible literature, uh, enormous amount of things that have been written about Buddha, including the scriptures, the Theravada Pali scriptures, enormous collection of works. But the actual teaching is. Is, uh, is is quite simple because it's it's uh, the four noble truths are are give us the it's is a is a is a pattern that we contemplate from just the, say the first noble truth of suffering which is common to everyone we all we all experience suffering in our lives so the first noble truth is is the truth that there is this suffering, this dukkha, 
Now, the dukkha in this sense, dukkha is the Pali word for, we translate it as suffering, but suffering isn't, doesn't cover all that dukkha covers. Dukkha is, covers every, everything. Or suffering usually, you know, in English we use it, uh, we, can, we can have it quite, you know, see it only in, as applying to certain things. But, but dukkha can, Im- implies unsatisfactoriness, a basic unsatisfactoriness that the word suffering doesn't imply. Like we can say happiness is dukkha. Which, which in English, we say happiness is suffering, sounds ridiculous. It sounds like you're kind of trying to put down happiness and kind of sour grapes. Happiness is suffering, yeah, like Scrooge. <laughs> but in, when, we, when we contemplate happiness as dukkha, that, that implies that happiness is, is a temporary state. So it's, it's, you can't have, uh, on the level of, of how we generally see happiness, you know, seeking pleasure and having a kind of pleasurable experience, that pleasure is, is, uh, is impermanent. So it's basically unsatisfactory. In nature, pleasure can, is pleasure still, and happiness is happiness. But it's it's impermanent. So when we are when we when we want it to be other than that, when we want happiness, sensory happiness, worldly happiness to be permanent, we're asking it to be something it can't be. And so, so because its nature is is impermanence, so it's it it can never really satisfy us. Worldly pleasures, worldly success, or, are. You know, they they may be gratify. They we have they can gratify us in moments of our lives, but but in ultimately, they cannot truly satisfy us. And that's why even the most fortunate human beings suffer. It's not just the poor and the and the underprivileged that suffer. It's the 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 privileged suffer. Everybody suffers. And living here in England, where we, you meet so many people who have so many privileges, and they they all suffered. <laughs> and this suffering then is or this dukkha is is the, is the it means that it, it's saying that that we can never find a a real refuge in the conditioned realm, and it's obvious, isn't it, when you put it like that. Your body, where is it taking you? To old age, sickness and death. If you're, if you're the body, then, then it's, it's, it's not going to satisfy you. It's, uh, it's only going to disappoint you. When you're young and healthy and uh, good-looking, and you might get some gratification, some pleasure out of it, but as, a, as an ongoing experience, it's, 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 well, those, those experiences diminish. And then it's taking us toward the uh, crematorium.
So that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But it's it's uh, we suffer when we when we when we don't want that, when we, and when we identify with the body, and then it when it's maybe healthy and young and so forth. And then when it changes, then it then we we hate it. We feel let down by life. Or say the attract the the attraction and repulsion experiences of the senses. If you notice, the senses all work. On that, uh, on, the, on the conditioned realm, is attraction and repulsion. You feel, you see something beautiful. You, the, the, say, just on eye consciousness, you see those flowers, and you, they're beautiful. You're attracted. You want to look. So this is a this is a natural uh, experience of of sensory uh, consciousness. But after a while, those flowers are are not going to look very beautiful. They start wilting and uh, start smelling bad, and they turn brown. They get ugly, and then they say, "Throw them out! Get rid of them!" You don't want. I don't want to sit here and have to look at those those wilted, brown, rotting, putrid flowers. And so that just because it's ugly and and unpleasant, then we want to. To get rid of it, so there's just an explanation of the the power of attraction and repulsion. And the sense, all senses work on that, obviously on that, those two principles. So sound, smell, taste, touch, thought itself, thought, happy thoughts, unhappy thoughts, memories, happy memories, good old days, or horrible memories. Of the past. So, in the conditioned realm, we're contemplating that conditioning, and the and the sensory experience through consciousness is is like this. There's this attraction, repulsion, but there's also neutrality. In in uh, sensory experience, so we begin to. If you notice that life tends to be very reactive when we're just seeking the beautiful and trying to avoid the ugly or have pleasure and no pain, then then our lives are continuously seeking something else because something that gives us pleasure now uh, doesn't later on. So we, we have to go on to from this, we have to go on to something else. And we get bored with, with something, we're interested in this now, but then after a while we become bored with it, so then we have to go on to something else that interests us. So this this sense of always keeping keeping trying to find something, trying to to move to something that excites, interests, pleases us, and and avoid the boredom, the disappointment, the the ugliness, the pain, the other side of human experience. So with with contemplation now, we're we're taking into the we're, we're accepting the 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 the, the the range of pleasure and pain, the beauty, the beautiful, the ugly, the the interesting and the boring. Because then, for example, we can we can get perspective when we when we see how things are. That that what interests us reaches a peak and then it becomes boring. We're willing to stay with the boredom, rather than just automatically as soon as we feel bored, go on to something else that's interesting. 
or with pain or with with the suffering that we're experiencing instead of just trying to get I won't get out of it and by going on to something else we're willing to bear with to accept the suffering to to embrace the suffering so this is this suffering then is the is the first noble truth the second noble truth is is the uh, insight into letting go of the causes of suffering so the first noble truth is to understand suffering means to understand something you have to accept it you can't understand anything that you're just reacting to uh, you know if you're just caught up in reacting to life you'll never understand life you just you just uh, you're just going to spend the rest of your life reacting somebody praises you you're happy somebody blames you you're depressed you're successful you're happy you you you're failure you 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 want to kill yourself and so forth you're just reacting to everything but in in meditation say we're 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 learning from this from the from the totality of it from both success and failure praise and blame happiness and suffering the beautiful and the ugly the wanted and the not wanted so understanding suffering is the insight into the first noble truth to stand under it like to embrace it to really because the tendency the reaction is usually as soon as I'm suffering I want to get get out of it and I just you know feel threatened feel bored feel pain discomfort hunger whatever I just want to to get away from it or or suppress it in some way but with meditation now we're willing to experience it to understand it so then because of that understanding you you begin to see the causes of the suffering are not you know you're not blaming it on something on the on the condition anymore but on the ignorance of grasping desires so we have desires for uh, pleasure for all kinds of worldly successes for becoming things and desires to to get rid of all kinds of ugly unpleasant unwanted things and these desires then are we when we grasp these desires then then that is the cause of suffering when we're when we don't know what's happening and we're merely reacting when we're caught in the momentum in the force of habit and then we 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 are experiencing we we suffer because we're att- attached we're grasping desires so that's why in uh, in in the in the second noble truth the insight is to let go of desire let go this letting go but you notice it's not getting rid we're not saying you shouldn't have desires because this this is what how often those people hear this kind of teaching the buddha said you shouldn't have any desires the buddha said everything's suffering and you shouldn't have any desires what does that do to your mind it's like you know it's it's a when when uh, re teachers come here 
and they have to teach Buddhism. They, Buddhism is a pretty hard subject to teach because it doesn't fit into the pattern of most religions. They say, the Christians believe in God. And Buddhists believe in suffering. <laughs> the Christians teach salvation through, through love and the Buddhists uh, want to just uh, get rid of themselves. Anatta, empty, uh, no self. And, and Nibbana, extinction. They just want to extinguish themselves. It's a, so, I mean, when you're trying to to uh, compare, say, Christian theology with Buddhist uh, teaching, it, it, you have to look at it in a different way because it's coming from a different, from the opposite end of it, really. It's a different way of of using your mind. So, notice the noble truths are, they're noble truths, they're not ultimate truths. It's not ultimate truth. They're not, they're not called absolute truth or ultimate truth. They don't use these words for this noble truth. I mean, it means that these truths are to be studied and investigated. They're not truths that you have to believe in and, and to become a Buddhist. But suffering is, is something we all experience, so it's, you don't have to believe in it because you already have it. When you believe in something, it's something you, you aren't quite sure what it is yet. And you like the idea. But, <laughs> but suffering is pretty basic experience to, to, to all of us. So it's, not, it's a noble truth, and, it, and it's, uh, suffering should be understood. Buddha said, and so we, we, we use this suffering not, uh, not as an identity or, or as something to grasp, but to understand. So it's like changing the direction, isn't it? You say the average person is usually trying to avoid and get out of suffering. So as soon as anything unpleasant happens, they try to get away from it. And then when life gets too bad, they get overwhelmed by suffering. They just get depressed or lost in, in misery and self-pity or blame. They increase their suffering. So, but understanding suffering means that like embracing, when you embrace something, you're taking it. You're, you're willing to, to have this experience. You're willing to, to feel it, to be with it. Not as a, not because you you like to suffer, but because this is the only way you can understand it. To understand yourself, you have to accept yourself. To understand life, you have to accept life. To understand things as they are, you have to accept things as they are. Embrace life as it is, rather than than uh, compare it to some idea of what you think it should be. So suffering is uh, to be understood. And so when we understand something, we admit it, that this, that this uh, say, wanting something I don't have yet. If I'm thinking about, oh, I'd like to have something. Being a monk, you, 
you get everything. The, the, the funny thing about monastic life is you give up everything and then people want to give you everything. So I'm trying to think of something I wanted. <laughs> but anyway, there's, uh, I'm thinking, of, oh, I would like, um, I'd like a, um, <laughs> every time I say that, one time I said, I was using this example, and I said ice cream, the next day somebody gave me ice cream. <laughs> I'm afraid to, to say it, use it, talk like this. But anyway, you get the idea, wanting something you don't have, and then you, you're thinking about it. And if you, if you really uh, go to that feeling of wanting something you don't have, and what does it feel like? We're not saying you shouldn't want things you don't have. We're not coming from, a, the, you know, from, from making moral judgments about this, saying you shouldn't want anything. You should be content with, with, with what you have, and you shouldn't go around wanting things you don't have. It's, it's not nice. We're not, we're not coming for that, but we're pointing to that's a common human experience, wanting something you don't have. So then we, 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 say we go to that feeling, there's something I want that I don't have, And it feels this way. So you begin to, to notice that, 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 that kind of agitated state of mind where you have got to have this. How can I get it? Uh, I really want this. Uh, I, and, and you can, you can you, by contemplating it, you're, you're accepting the feeling for what it is. That you're embracing it. You're actually willing to, to be with this, with this wanting something. But you're also watching it and invest examining it. What does it feel like? Does it feel good to want something? To have your mind caught up with wanting something. Does it is it a happy state of mind? Is it is it do you want would you like to have that all the time? To always be wanting something you don't have? And then then experience the feeling of it. And from my uh, observations when when I have this problem is that it's Suffering to want something you don't have is is dukkha. So I began to to notice that desire is like that. Desire is, is in 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 Buddhism the desire is always is a word that that comes from ignorance. I mean, they, they, with Pali language, you have more. It's a it's a Buddhist language. So I mean, desire. In, in English, is used for almost that, like desiring all kinds of, you know, the desiring the the welfare of all sentient beings, or desiring to become enlightened, things like that. But in in uh, but in in Pali language, dunha is is the result of ignorance, where the desire for enlightenment, we say, is is from wisdom. The, 
it's the a natural aspiration of human human heart it's like aspiration rather than than desire but in english we would tend to put use desire for almost anything anything that has you know like uh, any se- sense of wanting or aspiring but in the pali language it's more they have a different terms so Dunha or desire is definitely related to ignorance of the Four Noble Truths. So this desire, we, we started like, I had a lot of desire to get rid of things when I was a monk. Like anger, or I used to feel a lot of anger, so I used to have desire to get rid of it. Or I had bad thoughts, or I had felt jealous, or things like this, so I'd want to get rid of it. I hated myself for feeling uh, say jealousy or f- or uh, anger wanted to get rid of these things I had a lot of what they call vipawadanha or the desire to get rid of things to get rid of pain to get rid of fear and oftentimes vipawadanha even seems uh, righteous the desire to get rid of something like killing the devil almost seems like a good idea to to kill the the evil forces and burn the witches get rid of the pests mosquitoes uh, are horrible little creatures they give us malaria so we should get rid of them because they're bad and so Vipawadanha, desire to get rid of, has a kind of righteous, it almost seems right. We can easily be deluded by, by, the, by the way, that, by our sense of being right. And a lot of that, I think many of us, idealistic people and well-intentioned people, have a lot of the Vipawadanha desire, to, like to get rid of the people that are harming the whales. Or the, these movements, these ideas, uh, you know, wanting to get rid of the the uh, military-industrial complex, or or kill the abortionists. <laughs> I mean, it, it has a, a kind of righteous quality to it, doesn't it? The, these people are bad; they should be destroyed. And so that that, but if you look at that feeling of wanting to get rid of the bad, the dirty, the the painful. If you really look at that, you know, if you if you if you accept that feeling and really examine it, it's it's dukkha. Don't believe me, but find out whether I'm right. <laughs> but if you really look at yourself when you're feeling this sense of righteousness, that shouldn't be those people should be punished. They should be hung, they should be <laughs> and then and then, if you really look at that feeling of wanting to destroy is uh, it's, it's, it's dukkha, desire to get rid of something you don't like is dukkha <coughs> or ambition, wanting to become successful, wanting to to get the praise, wanting to uh, have power, had, have have uh, an important position, be have lots of money, have uh, become uh, uh, 
you know, become anything, become in in the world, to become something. And if you really look at that desire to become something that you feel you are not now, if you really examine it, what does it feel like? Is it happy state? Is it peaceful? Does it lead to calm, contentment, or what is it? What is it? So this this way we we kind of investigate, we look at these desires by accepting them and by investigating them, looking, watching, listening, paying attention. So through this then we have the insight to let go of desire, let go of the cause of suffering. That's where this letting go here comes from, is the insight into the second noble truth. And then to keep reminding you that letting go isn't Wipawadanha, desire to get rid of. <laughs> if you notice, if you. <laughs> because I, I've made that mistake myself, wanting to let go of things is often, can be another form of desire to get rid of. Then that's why we develop patience with, with pain or with discomfort or with mosquitoes and with. We develop, we develop loving-kindness as a, a meta-practice, an acceptance and patience and respect for, for things as they are and willing to, to bear with inconvenience or pain or unhappiness or, or difficult situations. That doesn't mean we like them or we're just passive in the face of injustice, but it, it, it allows us to not just react to it, not to just condemn and react and, and uh, follow impulse. With patience in that, we, we, we open ourselves much more to wisdom, to be able to say, respond more effectively, more appropriately than we would ever be able to when we're just caught in impulsive, impulsivity. So that's why during this retreat, when, when sadness or grief or desires or doubts or restlessness or physical pain or boredom or, or despair, self-aversion, any of these, these painful states you're experiencing, remind yourself to kind of embrace them. What do they feel like? And the thing is, once you accept something, you can let it go. Until you accept things, then you can't let anything go. You, you always, you, you, because you're making a karmic connection with something, but through this desire to get rid of, desire to get rid of evil, you're connecting to evil all the time. You're making. You're, you're. You're always. You're always trying to get rid of it. So you're. 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 You're making karma with evil all the time, by trying to 
get rid of it, destroy it. So it's through understanding. In the Mahatma Gandhi, we thought non-resistance to evil. That used to fascinate me when I was a young university student. I was brought up in, in, in the Christian attitude that you should resist evil at all costs. <laughs> that that life, there's evil forces all around you, and you've got to be careful because they'll they'll, they'll get you, and you've got to you've got to fight them, resist them. And if you don't, then they'll take you over. They'll suddenly just take you over, and you'll be find yourself doing terrible things. And that's a that's the kind of ethnic conditioning I had. And when I went into university, I took a seminar on uh, on Gandhi and I, years ago in Berkeley, and I'm talking about non-resistance to evil. And at first, I felt frightened, but I could feel this uh, this sense of fear. I don't know whether I. Should Yesterday we thought it's going to be a very interesting katina. <laughs> all the rain and storms, thunderstorms and whatnot, it was all exciting. And then this morning woke up and then seeing, looking out one saw the, the bright sky and, and everything that this day was going to be blessed. Where the David does the govern the, the, the English weather. <laughs> this year's been a very, very good year, actually. Remember, I think uh, last year I said it was, uh, uh, 1992 was Anna's Horribilis for Queen Elizabeth and myself. And 1994 has been very good, actually, a pleasant year, and uh, at least for me, and uh, the kind of uh, problems that, that, that come to, to anything in life seem to work their, themselves out in ways that are beneficial to everyone involved. So, so uh, this year there's a, a kind of... Uh, uh, tendency towards euphoria when we when we let ourselves follow our moods and we 
You can get slightly euphoric these days. But it's very interesting how uh, you know, the, uh, establishing a Sangha, a Buddhist monastery in here in uh, Britain, because uh, since it's never really been done before in this way, uh, you don't quite know what to expect. And uh, you don't, you, you know, you more or less, you have no precedent uh, for it other than what you experience in Thailand, where Buddhism has been established for centuries, where it's a, a part of a culture. It's the, all the important people, the king and queen and the politicians and the civil servants, everyone is, is most, more than likely to be a Buddhist than not. And where monasteries uh, have existed for a uh, thousand years or more. And then here, say, Amravati, this is our 10th year at, um, at this particular place. We came in 1984, and Ajahn Birdamo was the kind of vanguard. He was sent here uh, to kind of uh, get the place ready. Uh, it was in August. We had to enter the second Vasa. The, the nuns had, done, had walked, made this walk, pilgrimage from Chithurst uh, up to Amravati. And the day that they arrived on the edges of Amravati, we met them and we made a kind of procession into the gates of Amravati around the field and uh, took possession of this site. That was in, what, August, uh, I forget the day, 19th or something, of, of 1984. So this is 1994, 10 years have passed. And this it's very interesting to, to see that when you're, when you're meditating how the perception of time uh, is, uh, is very much one that you uh, question. Because uh, in, in the Buddhist teaching is, is a teaching for real, realizing the timeless or, eternity, or the eternal or the deathless. Now, uh, and yet we live in, we're so conditioned, so influenced by time. Everything is, uh, at the end of this talk, I'll give you calendars for next year. And we have clocks everywhere. Uh, I remember when I was a monk in Thailand, you had one little kind of mechanical clock that you treasured. And it was very hard to get clocks. And so when you had one, you, you really uh, took good care of it. And now, due to the... Uh, and all these uh, uh, quartz clocks, you get clocks all over the place. You can't give them away. So when it comes to changing from British summertime, you have to change so many clocks. <laughs> but this is not really a problem. <laughs> but it's just uh, how in just a few years uh, things the, the whole expectation of life can change. In, uh, for example, in the first monastery in Thailand, uh, uh, just, uh, you, where, where you didn't expect very much at all, life was very simple. Uh, it wasn't, uh, your, your life was just based on very, the most simple kind of requisites. And uh, monasteries were, were part or integrated into the whole social system. And, and way of operating within that system. Here in England, we've had uh, all kinds of meetings and endless discussions on 
the legal position of a Buddhist monastery in Britain trying to work out its charitable status, its proper way of relating to the, to the existing laws and, and regulations of this country and the position of, of monks and nuns and, and, and whether uh, novices, anagarikas, can be considered monks and nuns for just the immigration allowances or whether they're not. And they have, in, they have to, to determine so many different kinds of things that were say, in Thailand just taken for granted. We just didn't have to think about it at all. But fortunately, it goes very well. This country, uh, Britain, is a very, uh, is very reasonable society. So you, you're, not, you're not kind of thrown into uh, impossible situations ever. And there's always a way you can work it out. And I appreciate that very much, uh, the, the, the mentality of the civil servants uh, is, is quite a reasonable one. They, they try to, uh, they'll, they'll take in special allowances or special needs or uh, they aren't the same, the book says this and you can only do it this way. They, they will consider, say, well, you'll say things like, well, this, we've never had Buddhist monasteries in Britain so we can't really apply this rule to this situation and we've got to, so you have, you feel in many ways that that you you have uh, a reasonable society to to solve your problems in. You're not you're not up against a, a hard line in a, in a lot of intolerance, which is very very nice indeed, very good. So the, I'd say the monasteries uh, in that we have here, the four here in Britain, uh, are quite well established now, and and uh, the. Uh, the Sangha itself is maturing to where uh, when we came 18 years ago, I think Ajahn Virdhamma only had about three vases. Isn't that right? Uh, he came with me, I had ten, he had three, and of course he had to kind of, uh, he and uh, Venerable Nander needed to just kind of jump in and do things and, and uh, didn't have the kind of uh, period of grace that most monks have where where you uh, say the beginning years you you don't have to take on responsibilities and so then one wonders sometimes whether that's good for monks or you know at the time I, I wondered am I involving these poor monks in uh, something that is going to destroy their spiritual development you know you can't you since you don't quite know how uh, and you have to take risks. Uh, one idealizes maybe a monastery is a certain ideal place where where certain very good form of training can take place, and where everything is just right and and organized uh, to uh, support all their emotional, uh, physical, spiritual needs in that one place. But actually, life isn't like that. Uh, you realize that that uh, uh, the, what you really learn is, is not uh, from uh, having ideas of how things should be, but, but the ability to adapt to the changing conditions that we find ourselves with, both personally, uh, in, in our own group, our own families, in our society. We can see now the world is 
is in a state of where the, the changing, the rapid changingness of this, of the, of the whole, of everything on, on this planet. There's in, on the, in the ecological scene uh, and on the social scene, in every way, there's the, the old structures, the old ways, the, the things that say most of us thought were, were the, what we were used to, what were the standards that we, we thought were, would never change, are changing. For example, I'd never expected to see the collapse of the Soviet Union in my lifetime. When the Berlin Wall was taken down, I mean, that was such a total surprise. I asked some German monks who were here. Uh, before that, just before that happened, I asked one German monk, I said, do you, uh, when do you think the Berlin Wall will come down? And he said, and he's quite young, he said, uh, not in my lifetime. <laughs> He's only about 28 or so. <laughs> uh, still alive, too. <laughs> and then, then, a, then not distant time from that, they started taking down the Berlin Wall. And they all saying, this couldn't, this isn't, this is a, couldn't happen. It's not supposed to happen like this. And we see some, the, just the whole attitude of society changing in, in ways that, Say, questioning, looking, or old institutions, old ways of viewing life, uh, uh, expectations of life, attitudes, everything is under question now in the human situation. There's nothing that, that can't be questioned. Everything is now up for consideration. So in one way, it's a very, it's a kind of wonderful time to be alive because uh, there is this kind of openness and, and a real interest and a real uh, willingness to look at things that have been taken for granted or just been part of a system for so long. And we can see that, that uh, the awakening of the human heart, awakening of the human mind, is, is necessary to us, for us to question, to look deeply into, to look at the way things are, not operate, not feel that, that, that all we have to do is be told what to believe in and operate from uh, a system that is given to us by somebody else. And so this teaching is actually really good Dhamma, and what the Buddha was trying to do 2,500 years ago in India. This isn't a new teaching, it's not like New Age philosophy. It's, the, it's, the, it's an ancient teaching, isn't it? It's something that, that uh, would, for us, 2,500 years ago, we can't imagine what was going on here at Amravati 2,500 years ago. What kind of people lived here? Running around in animal skins, isn't it? <laughs> and there. Uh, So, 2,500 years ago, in terms of the age of the universe, is, uh, is not a particularly long time. But for our way of thinking, our human attitudes around time, uh, even a hundred years seems like a long time. So, ten years at Amravati can seem like a, 
a long time, but it's not very long. We realize that the Sangha in Britain is still very young. It's, uh, you know, both in, we, we, I think I'm the oldest bhikkhu in the Sangha. I'm the, the senior elderly elder, 60. And uh, so that is, we go to some of the Christian monasteries, and, uh, and 60 is the youngest. I'd be one of the young whippersnappers. <laughs> so this is a fairly young community. But also, it, uh, the, the power of the Buddhist way of meditation, this is very interesting for me to watch, how, how it changes people, or how people develop, people that have been with me for this period of time, just to to see what, you know, how it works on the mind. Because uh, I think many of us were attracted, uh, you know, through the, the theory of Buddhist meditation, where we, where we found it uh, something that appealed to us, a very uh, interesting, uh, intellectually uh, stimulating and sensible way of living and developing your mind. So, say, most of the Western uh, monks and nuns, most of us start from, from up here in the head, in the brain. We, we found it inspiring and, and reasonable and sensible and worth, we felt it was noble and worth following. So that, a lot of that comes from just our, our thinking mind and our appreciation for, for ideas and teaching. But then the actual life, living as a Buddhist monk or nun, day in, day out. Not like a meditation retreat where, you, you know, it's really nice teaching meditation retreats at the retreat center here because you, uh, you go, people come for 10 days, uh, everybody is, uh, uh, takes the vow of noble silence and uh, everything is nicely organized. Uh, Jill Osler has, is, uh, has been the retreat center manager for Eight, eight years now, and she's done a marvelous job of just organizing. And, and so the, that retreat center runs just very easily, very easy to, you, you know, there's no problems in organizing it or running it. We're so used to it now. So you, you teach for 10 days and just teach the dumb and everybody's listening and calming down and quiet and getting, becoming quiet. And, and, uh, it all, and people get so inspired by the Dhamma on these retreats. And then daily life isn't, isn't, isn't like a retreat because it's the, it's the, the it, you don't have that much control. You have to, you have to adapt, you have to uh, work, you have to speak, you have to take responsibilities. This is all a part of our human life, isn't it? Having to, do things, having to be responsible, having to make choices every day. Now on a retreat, all that's diminished. You don't have to make choices. You just say, you're expected if you go on this retreat to follow this schedule. You don't think, do I want to follow the schedule? The agreement, if you're going to go on the retreat, is you're going to follow the schedule. That's fair enough. And uh, the cooking is done by a group. It's all decided. So you don't have to think, I want this to eat today. I don't want that. 
well, what am I going to eat? You just take what you get. And you, you don't have to socialize with anybody. Do charming and outgoing and, and, uh, and interested in other people and, and uh, listen to each other's stories and be, make friends and quarrel with each other. You just sit there with each other for 10 days. So, 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 but then in the, in the daily life, they, whether it's monastic or lay, uh, all these other things come in. Having to choose, uh, having to uh, live with people, having to talk to them, relate to them, uh, having to uh, take on responsibilities. And so, the, the, well, you know, is, if the Buddhist teaching is only a teaching for a silent, organized, and controlled retreat, then it is a, a teaching, say, that, uh, that depends on special conditions. So this was one of my uh, interesting uh, questions I mean, that I've used in my life to find out how does this, is, if Buddhist teaching is universally true, then it, must, it can't depend on conditions being any certain way. It, it, the only way something could be really true is that it isn't dependent on conditions because conditions change all the time. And uh, you, in every time we want to control and, and, and kind of make things permanent and static and, and secure, we're, we're being frustrated all the time because uh, that's not the way things are. The condition realm we live in is a, is a dynamic flux. It's ever-changing. And yet the, our minds want to fix, want security through fixing, through believing, through through fine, through making things rigid uh, because we feel very insecure in this realm of change. So the Buddha said, instead of trying to to do the impossible, like make something changing unchangeable, the thing to do is to, to contemplate the nature of change and to be able to allow yourself to flow with that change so that your mindfulness, the, the way of practice, is being able to surrender to the changingness of the conditioned realm. Which doesn't mean we just, we just go along with everything, but it means we find that in ourselves which sees and knows change as that, and in which we find our stability in, in, through awareness rather than through controlling and manipulating the conditioned world. So the real refuge of the Buddha is in understanding things as they are. And this is the Buddha's teaching, to see things as they really are not trying to make things live up to a high standard or an ideal of what we imagine they should be, but seeing things as they really are. And I think this, this emphasis over the years has, you know, this is not there we go.
Also, I've 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 been uh, um, invited Ajahn Birdemo to come back from New Zealand. When uh, he went, he's been in New Zealand for nine years and established the the um, Bodhinyana Rama Monastery, uh, which is uh, outside of Wellington, and uh, very very not very nice monastery, very good place. And uh, uh, because uh, one felt that um, uh, we needed his kind of help here in England. And so my plans are now to, uh, I'd like to, I'm talking over with him, and if, uh, uh, in the future we intend that he should be the abbot of Amaravati Monastery. And I will kind of uh, step back a bit uh, and more interested in the teaching aspects or that than in the kind of uh, abbot uh, administrative positions that I've been so uh, much involved with over so many years. And Ajahn Virdamo seemed very willing to support me in this. Uh, so this is, this is another change. And you think, like, now that I'm a, a sexagenarian, and that means 60. <laughs> it's also <laughs> it's also a retirement age, and, and one uh, feels uh, not the ones that want to retire, like uh, go, go up and play golf or anything like that, but, like many men do. It the but also, it uh, it uh, just one feels that that uh, things like like the abbot uh, position of this monastery would best be done by uh, Ajahn Virdamo. So I just I wanted you to hear this from the horse's mouth because all kinds of rumors start going around, uh, and they say Ajahn Tomato's leaving and. <laughs> But I'm, I won't be leaving, but I'll be. Uh, but uh, my, my say, I don't know. I don't exactly know how this is going to work, but it will give me more chance to spend time at branch monasteries and and also uh, in the uh, say uh, involvement in teaching, uh, which is something I quite like doing. Also, we are uh, planning to build this temple. Uh, Next year, we have permission. Uh, last year, this time, uh, the Katina, we were still in this uh, state of uh, where I think I last Katina, Dason, I told you about uh, every time Venerable Pemo said uh, the appeal, I've got these, these kind of strange, unpleasant sensations in my belly. Because we had to go to appeal to get permission, and then then uh, somebody say the appeal, and I'd feel this because I was the chief witness for this appeal to get permission for building this temple. But uh, we went to appeal last November and uh, won the appeal, so we we have uh, we can build this uh, temple. Uh, the uh, donations have been coming uh, in for this temple. The Bank of Thailand itself uh, has just offered 35,000 pounds as a donation for this temple 
uh, help uh, to uh, finance the building of this temple. So this is uh, was greatly appreciated because the temple is a place where they it, uh, it it will have the main shrine. It will be uh, a place where you uh, they uh, can perform ordinations. It will be a sema boundary. It will be an uposita hall. And it will look like a temple. It won't be a kind of a, just a, a, a house of some sort where you perform these things. It will uh, have its own, uh, it will be definitely temple-like and be very beautiful. And, and of course, it will be a place for meditation and for uh, a quiet place. Uh, generally, like we, th we see this hall here as a sala for eating, uh, for dining, for for meeting people, for more social events, uh, these this, this kinds of activities. And the, the temple building will be a place much more for the uh, actual Sangha Kama, or the duties of the Sangha, the meetings, uh, and the meditation, and the uh, uh, pujas uh, in, this, uh, in this beautiful temple. So when I... Uh, the end of my talk, I'll ask Ajahn Amro to, to give you some more information about this, this temple. So this is going along very well too, the, the, uh, the um, idea of, of trying to, to uh, make this site much more into a place that, that looks like a monastery. And uh, the, the temple will be adjacent to this building where the old Dharma Hall is, where I live, and the and the uh, where the coffee shop is, those buildings will be taken down, and uh, there the, the temple will be built with a cloister coming in the in the courtyard. So that uh, hoping that the there'll be some better protection uh, from wind and rain in the future, because not all festival days end up like this, as you as many of you have noticed. So this is also another inspiring uh, thing that's happening over the next few years is, is uh, seeing even the, the structures uh, coming up that are de developing deliberately for the, for the out of the Buddhist uh, um, interest in Buddhism and the, the uh, increasing amount of support and and uh, development of the Buddhist teachings in this country, where most of the the 18 years in in England have, have been merely adapting old buildings, like Chitters taking a, uh, an old uh, manor house and and renovating it into some kind of Buddhist monastery. This will actually be a a uh, monastery designed uh, for Buddhist. Uh, uh, ceremonies and Buddhist practices. And it's in a very interesting area because this is a very lovely part of, of England, the Chiltern Hills. It's on top of a hill. Uh, the, um, this has been an area of, of interest historically uh, because the uh, Ashridge Estate is just very nearby, uh, which was uh, uh, a monastery. Now it's a business management college. <laughs> so I wonder what this will be like in 800 years. Uh, 
Somebody said, as long as it's not a, a, a school for Soviet spies. That's what they told me in Chitters years ago when we won, when, we, when, when they gave us planning permission to, to use Chitters as a Buddhist monastery. And one of the counselors came up and said, well, at least it's better than if it were going to be a school for Soviet spies. I think he's trying to be nice. <laughs> I think he's he's trying to say uh, he's trying to be friendly. But it, <laughs> there are no Soviet spies now, anyway. But the the area it has uh, there in the field next to this in the farmer's field. Uh, was a uh, was a Benedictine uh, nunnery that was destroyed at the time of Henry VIII. That's why it's called Saint Margaret's. This area, because it was that was the name of the of the convent that was in the field, right next to where the nuns uh, reside now. So I mean, uh, one feels uh, that there is a that you know that that the the spiritual uh, uh, vibes are quite. Uh, quite good here and that uh, it has an interesting history where the uh, they found the, the remains of, of the Cathar heresy in this area in the Pickett's End which is a, a little village on the outskirts of Hemel Hempstead they found uh, a house uh, with uh, Cathar murals that were hidden under the plaster and the plaster fell off the wall and there were these these very interesting religious murals that nobody could understand. And then they realized they were, uh, it was probably some kind of rest house or some kind of place for the Cathars, who were, uh, of course, exterminated by the Catholic Church. In, they, they, most of them lived in the Languedoc area of, in the Pyrenees, around Toulouse. Uh, and they, um, in Two years ago, Ajahn Sajito and I went, went to Dong, walked through the Pyrenees and, uh, from uh, uh, to these uh, Cathar, uh, uh, what remains of the Cathar tradition, which is are uh, just ruined fortresses on top of hills. Uh, and this was in the around the uh, town of Foix in, uh, in uh, the Pyrenees, uh, Languedoc. Part of France, so the the, the Cathars were were vegetarians, were, were very kind of moral, um, uh, very disciplined kind of uh, Christians uh, that were considered very threatening, and in that time were were gaining much political power and influence in in France and Spain and Italy, and of course they were. Uh, this was about in twelve. 1200 or so, they were brutally kind of exterminated. And this, in this area, was obviously had some connection to that group. Uh, and the Ashridge uh, estate, which is now the business management college, was founded by uh, some monks called Bonhomes, which uh, a French, uh, of course, is French, but it, that's what the Cathars used to call themselves, the Bonhomes. So, what you want to make of this, I, I have no deja vu experiences of previous lives being a Cathar, being burned at the stake, or, or ever having lived here before. I'm not trying to, to make any case for it, but just 
the, the, the sense of history and time and change, how this area has now become, for the most part, a kind of dormitory uh, villages for uh, people working in London. And uh, you have you have these this uh, you know because it's 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 commuter distance uh, you can travel from here to London quite easily then uh, and the British Petroleum built their their, their offices in, on in Hemel Hempstead and so forth that that one uh, sees it now as 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 the kind of religious spirit of say, of any European country, especially northern European countries and Britain, the, the religious spirit somehow is, uh, has, has been, been kind of uh, diminished. And this, this, uh, this powerful materialism and fascination for things and, and transforming the material world to, to fit our desires and to try to, to bend the nature into the patterns of our wishes and dreams, uh, and to live a life just for, say, ease and comfort and personal convenience. And yet, at the same time, one feels in Britain uh, a real hunger, spiritual hunger, and, and many people are. There's an awakening taking place uh, here in Europe that, uh, that I've seen since I came here in 1977. A definite, a, a very profound change in, in outlook, in expectation, in assumption. People much more uh, realize, awaken to, uh, say, the that maybe life needs to be looked at more closely, and that we can't just expect governments and systems to provide us with everything and make us comfortable and safe. That that. We, there's really something we must do ourselves. That the changes, the real change, has to come from within us. Uh, and the, the profound change, and the change that takes us to that ultimate realization of truth, liberation from delusion, which is the aim of the Buddha's uh, teaching, is to liberate the human mind from its delusions, from its habits and to be able to see things as they really are. And so this teaching is a universal teaching. It's, it's, you, it, that's why it, it works here in Britain, in a, in a European country where it's never existed before, uh, and in a time that is so very different from where, when it was originally established in terms of, of culture and, and uh, technology and politics and all the rest. But yet the human condition is still the same. The suffering human beings still suffer. They did at the time of the Lord Buddha and they do now. So that the, the teaching is this emphasis on looking and understanding the nature of suffering. So that we break the, through the, the illusions that cause this suffering. We, we begin to see that we create suffering. That it's, it's not, we, even though we might think it's somebody else, it's not really anyone else or anything external. It's, it's, our, it's what we create, what we believe, what we grasp, what we produce out of our minds, what we project out of delusions, out of fear, out of desire. That is the, 
what makes us feel this, this suffering and this discontentment. I want to uh, say people that have, have very much been involved with this katina. Of course, Ajahn Amaro has been very, uh, took on the responsibility of organizing as the, as the bhikkhu that uh, was responsible for contacting the people. Then, of course, uh, Kun Pasana from the uh, Bank of Thailand, uh, who offered the katina. And then Kun Gunjira uh, Sujirot, who has uh, been very helpful in uh, in organizing and, and developing it here, uh, so that uh, doing the kind of donkey work for the organization. Then uh, uh, Rohini and Ruki Filam also want to. Uh, mention Kalyana Siri and Shirley MacDonald and Lada, of course, who's uh, uh, running the coffee shop. And then uh, two, uh, one, two of the men that were most uh, involved with organizing this couldn't make it. They are suffering from sickness. Susilo from Bedford and Colin Ash. So I mean, I hope I hope they, that we didn't work them too hard. That they that these uh, this uh, now we also another another good sign that that I see very promising sign is we've had where or the the lay people are are better organized. And it used to be the monks and the nuns would organize everything and try to get lay people to help. But we were always kind of involved uh, and sometimes overwhelmed with, with all kinds of responsibilities and, and the sense that we had to do it. And then everybody expected us to do it. And over the past few years, this has changed to where there's a, a, a lay, layman's uh, support group. And uh, there's also more interest in in committing oneself to the actual refuges and the and the five precepts, so we we've started this this uh, what we call this upasika training, which for some people, well, especially Western people, they they get very suspicious when things get too organized. I think upasika training sounds like um, you know some neo-Nazi movement, skinheads. I'm afraid it's. <laughs> going to be some cult or clique or something like the solar religion that burned themselves to death recently. But this is quite harmless and quite uh, skillful thing to be doing because uh, people in this country really need to, you know, it's really helpful to, to come together and to make a commitment not out of duty but just to make some stronger affirmation of what you're doing. It helps to to, to make your mind clear, to feel that you're, you're not just doing it all on your own, that you've got a kind of background of people, of friends, and people uh, involved in the same way, and not just uh, some kind of abstraction. Uh, where sometimes we do, we think, oh, you know, it's do it yourself, you don't need to do all that, just uh, 
you know, if you want to take the precepts, just, just say them to yourself. That's good enough. And in some ways, that's true. It's good enough. But also the power of a group taking the precepts together uh, in, this, in this way of upasika training is very powerful, very strong feeling that you don't get when you just say, well, I can just take it. You know, when I go home, I'll just look at it and say, I promise to do this. And it, uh, sometimes we, we, we don't make things very strong in our minds, so they don't really have that much influence on, on our consciousness. And you can see the, the power of becoming a, a monk or a nun, a bhikkhu or a stilidra. It's a very powerful experience. You think, it was just shaving your head, putting it on a robe, so what? But it's, it's, I mean, even though on the level that you can say that's what you're doing, it's, uh, how, the effect it has on your life and your mind is, isn't just, it isn't just that. It's your, you're putting yourself in, in something that is very, that is a vehicle that is very powerful and th which you can't really say what it is as such, but you're certainly feeling it. And it, uh, and it does, it has a tremendous power to, um, to hold you and to support you. And this is, this is what traditions are for and what conventions are for, uh, if they're used properly if they're used in the right way. Of course, like anything, they can be just, they can be just perfunctory. Uh, they can be you just what you do, the things that you're supposed to do, and you, you just do them because you're told that's what you should be doing. And then, then of course, the convention doesn't have, I mean, you're not, you're not, it does not really help in, it's more or less uh, institutionalizing, or you're just blindly conforming. But because Buddhism is a new thing in this country, because it's 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 completely new. It's it's not like say in Thailand, Buddhism is is old fashioned. I told somebody years ago when I when I, before I was a monk, I was teaching English at Thammasat University, and one of the students, a Thai girl that had spent went to high school in the states, and uh, she was spoke very good English because of that, and she was going, she received a scholarship to an American university to study psychology. And this time I was practicing meditation at Wat Mahat Hat. Uh, I wasn't a monk yet, and so she told me, you know, I've, I have this scholarship, I'm going to America to study psychology. And I said, a waste of time. <laughs> I said, if you really want to understand psychology, you should practice Buddhist meditation. I know the psychologists here are going to have a go at me after this. <laughs> Remember, I said this uh, 30 years ago. 